I would encourage you to open your copies of the Scriptures, please, this morning to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, for those of you who are new, new here, we're thankful for you. We love that you have chosen to worship with us this morning. And I want you to know kind of where we've been as well as where we're going. We've been working our way and walking our way through Mark's gospel. So if you can find the beginning of the New Testament, the gospel of Matthew, the very next book is the gospel of Mark. And we're in chapter 5 this morning. We've been following Jesus around as he he is showing us that he has come to this earth to live life on purpose. So that when we see Jesus nailed to a cross, when we see him hanging there, when we see him dying there, we know that it is no accident. We know that he's not forced there or coerced there, that he chooses to go. That is the purpose for which he has come. And he has come in dying For us, not a sign of weakness, but of power, of authority. It's that no one could keep Jesus from completing the mission. It's that no one could keep Jesus from the cross. That's his life on purpose for us us. And each and every step of the way to the cross, Jesus is showing us, he's proving, he's putting on display his power, his authority, so that when he dies, we don't look at him as a victim. We look at him as as the victor who will demonstrate his power over death on the third day by rising again. Amen. Death cannot hold him. Sin cannot, cannot keep him. The devil cannot stop him. And so in the storms of our life, that power, that care, that purpose is just as active today. Jesus is still the King of kings and Lord of lords. So you follow along in your copies of the Scriptures, please. I'm going to read for you beginning in verse 21 of Mark chapter 5, and I'll read through verse 34. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. And she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus. So she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, Jesus, you you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. 
Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is the word of our God demonstrating to us the power and care and compassion of the Son of God. We've all heard the phrase, desperate times call for desperate. Okay, let's try that again. We've all heard the phrase, desperate times call for desperate measures. Thank you. Somebody up in the balcony got that, all right? It's when actions that seem extreme under normal circumstances are actually now appropriate in times of extreme difficulty or danger, like me last Sunday morning. Because on my way to church last Sunday morning, my car's tire pressure monitoring system began speaking to me. So when I got to church... I got out of my vehicle, looked around at the tires, and I discovered that my front left tire had been impaled by a nail. By the way, I just need to say something here. We've been here for two and a half years. This is the fourth time that's happened. Tell me that Satan is not real. That's a joke, okay? This never happened down in rural southern Illinois. What is it up here? And so I jumped back into my car and I made my way up to the mobile station on Roselle where I learned that I would have to pay 75 cents to get pressurized oxygen into my tire. 75 cents. Why would I break my $20 bill to get 75 cents worth of oxygen into my tire? Why? Because... Desperate times call for desperate measures. Now, I know that's somewhat of a comical illustration, but I also know that the vast majority of the desperate times we face are anything but comical. They're painful. They're scary. And that's what's happening at the fo- in the four scenes here at the end of Mark chapter 4 and all the way through Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus' disciples have feared the storm, and so in desperation, they've come to Jesus to rescue them. People in chapter 5, the verse 20 verses, people fear this demon-possessed man. He is possessed by a legion of demons, and Jesus frees him. And now in this part of the text in Mark chapter 5, we, we meet a woman with a chronic illness who lives in perpetual fear. And then there's Jairus who we learn later in the text has a 12-year-old daughter who is deathly ill. And in these back-to-back-to-back-to-back scenes, Mark is highlighting two great truths for us. He's highlighting first and foremost Jesus' power and authority over all things, over nature, over demons, over disease, and even over death. But he's also highlighting the fact that this world is a scary place full of those scary things. Like when you're called into the boss's office and you're told that with a potential recession looming, the company's downsizing and you're the fall guy. 
Or your doctor calls and asks you to meet her in her consultation room. She needs to discuss the test results with you in person. Or your son FaceTimes you from his college dorm room to inform you that he's decided that this whole Jesus thing is a sham and he's leaving the faith altogether. Or the phone rings at 3 a.m. It's your mom telling you that your dad has suffered a massive stroke and that now he's with Jesus. This world is a scary place filled with scary stuff. The Bible does not shy away from that reality. The Bible does not ignore that reality. One of the reasons I believe in the authenticity of this book is that the Bible actually highlights that reality and then gives us the remedy for it. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And so the big question for us to ask ourselves this morning and to answer is, what are we going to do with the fear-induced desperation we feel in life's scary situations? There are only two options. One, we can do what the townspeople do back in verse 17 of this chapter. After Jesus frees that man from the legion of demons... The townspeople say to Jesus, hey, we appreciate your power, but it kind of scares us. And so we want you to know that before you got here, we were just fine. And after we ask you to leave, we'll do just fine as well. So Jesus, just hop back in your boat and go back to the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. We don't want you. We don't need you. That's an option. That's, a tab- that's on the table. We can, we can attempt to handle the scary stuff of life on our own. Or the second option is that we can, we can, like the disciples, come in faith to Jesus in that storm. Like Jairus with his dying daughter. Like this woman with her chronic illness. We can come and lay our fears and our doubts and our concerns at the feet of Jesus. Because in these scenes, Jesus is saying to us in this room this morning, bring the desperation of your situation to me. I don't just have the answer. I am the answer. Now, we're going to have to fight to believe that. There are times in our lives, just to be honest this morning, there are times in our lives when Christ feels so distant and disconnected. Times that our faith in Jesus feels like nothing more than wishful thinking. And that's when we've got to fight the good fight of faith. Because faith is the courage to believe Jesus even when we don't understand what he's doing. Faith is the commitment to follow Jesus even when we don't know where he is leading. Faith is the willingness to grab on to everything we know to be true of Jesus even when it goes against everything we're feeling. That's the war that is fought every day on the turf of our hearts. It's a fight of faith. 
Are we actually going to believe the radical claims of Jesus? And will we stake our lives on those claims? Because that's what's happening right here in verse 21, where we learn afresh and anew a truth we already know, that life hurts. Because when Jesus arrives by by boat back on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, he is approached by two very desperate people doing very desperate things. The first is Jairus. We don't know a lot about Jairus, but we do know this. We know that he's one of the rulers of the synagogue, probably there in Capernaum. He's a member of the religious establishment. And remember, in our study of Mark, we've already learned that the religious establishment has labeled Jesus as public enemy number one. And they are going to kill Jesus. And yet here's Jairus. A religious leader, a part of that group, pushing and pulling and bumping his way through the crowd, trying to get to Jesus. Because back home, his 12-year-old daughter is sick, very sick, to the point of death kind of sick. And there's nothing the doctors can do. She's dying before their very eyes. They feel so desperately helpless, and with each passing moment, it's all becoming so desperately hopeless. You know, this is not supposed to happen. Children are supposed to outlive their parents. And that's why here in this scene, Jairus throws all caution to the wind. He no longer cares what the religious establishment thinks. He's heard what others have said that Jesus can do. That Jesus can give new eyes to the blind and new ears to the deaf and new legs to the lame. And that's why Jairus won't stop until he gets to Jesus. Because when he gets to Jesus face to face, he falls down flat at the feet of Jesus. Begging earnestly, passionately, persistently. Jesus, please help me. Please, please. My little daughter is at the point of death. Jesus, won't you come and lay your hands on her? And here it is. Here's what's going to get Jairus in trouble with the religious establishment. So that she may be made well and live. I love that. I love that. Not just Jairus' courage, but Jairus' confession of his confidence in Jesus. It's those two little words we can tend to skip right over in this verse. In verse 23, so that, so that she may live. So that she may live. May there is not a maybe kind of way but may in a will kind of way so that she may be made well and she will live. Do we have this kind of confidence in Jesus? The kind of faith that doesn't care what others think. 
The kind of faith that doesn't let the crowd keep us from Jesus. In our everyday life, in the scary, scary stuff, do we bring our desperation to Jesus? Jairus does, regardless of the cost. Because in those days, grown men don't plead in public. In those days, it was considered shameful for guys to show this kind of emotion. And for a Jewish religious leader to throw himself at another man's feet, especially the feet of Jesus, unthinkable. But Jairus is desperate. His need is great. And he believes that Jesus is willing Not just to hear Jairus plead, not just to respond to Jairus' plea, but to walk every step of the way back home with Jairus. Listen, Jesus can heal from a distance. Jesus can heal from any distance. He doesn't have to go with Jairus. He wants to go with Jairus for Jairus. Even though there's a large crowd thronging him, even though he's in high demand, Jesus goes with him. That's grace. Jesus is approachable. Jesus is available. Jesus is accessible because Jesus is personal. Everything Jesus has on his to-do list takes an immediate back seat to Jairus and his need and together they take off back to Jairus' home darting through that massive crowd when suddenly and unexpectedly Jesus stops. And he turns around. It's 30. Jesus within himself that power has gone out from him. Not magical power or mystical power, miraculous power. The same power that calmed the raging storm for the disciples. The same power that freed the possessed man of his demons. It's raw power and real power because it's God power. And someone, Jesus knows that someone has just been on the receiving end of that power. It's a woman with an illness, a chronic illness. She has a constant discharge of blood. Now, when I have preached this text previously at one of our previous churches, I kind of tried to tactfully skirt around this woman's real issue. And then after the service, one of the women in the congregation came to me and called me out on it. I had referred to this woman's condition as hemophilia. Technically, that is correct, but there's more to it. So I'm going to say this as tactfully as I can. This woman's issue is that her monthly cycle is stuck. And it has been for 12 years. Every moment of every day for 12 years. That's the duration of her situation. It's a long time. Life hurts 
not just because of that condition, but because her situation means separation, isolation. She's all alone. You know why? Because according to Jewish law, her constant perpetual bleeding makes her what? Unclean. Twelve years of that. Twelve years of no hugs and no high fives. Twelve years of no shopping at the local market, no evening walks with the dog, no worship at the local synagogue. Twelve years a prisoner in her own home, permanently quarantined. We think a few days or even a few weeks of COVID quarantine is tough. This woman would trade places with us in a heartbeat because she's desperate and she's destitute. She's not just broken, she's broke. The doctors, all of them, And I wanted to insert in here a little um, reference to Dr. Fauci. That if that was supposed to be funny, all right? So um, that if he would have been around, certainly, never mind. The Bible doesn't say that. The doctors who promised to cure all of them, but none of them could deliver. Neither could the medications. Her bleeding isn't getting any better. In fact, it's getting worse. And now her bank account is empty. And remember, there's no social social security. There's no disability. There's no unemployment. She can't get a job. Who's going to hire a woman with a constant discharge of blood? There's no Etsy yet. And so she can't sell her crocheted blankets online. She can't. Even sit at the city gate and beg. Something's got to give. Life hurts. But she has heard that Jesus heals. And that he's back in town. If, if only she could get close enough to him to touch the hem of his garment. Because back in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2, God promised this about the Messiah. Listen, for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. That's Jesus, the promised one, the Messiah, the son of righteousness. Righteousness, and now he's coming down her street with healing in his wings. And so she covers her face so as not to be recognized. She walks out her front door, pushing her way through the crowd. And coming up behind Jesus, she lunges toward him and touches the hem of Jesus' robe. And immediately she feels different. Immediately, she feels new. Immediately, she is healed. Now, up until this point in the story, it's important for us to know that she's flown under the radar. Nobody knows she's there. Nobody knows she's healed. Perhaps she turns around back toward home thinking, if I can just blend in and make my way back home, nobody will ever know that I just did the unthinkable. That I, being unclean, 
just touched Jesus. But that's when Jesus turns around and stops and asks, who touched me? And the disciples, and oh, the disciples, right? They step up and say, Jesus, really? With all these people pressing in on you, bumping up against you, walking right beside you, and you ask who touched you? Really? Well, let's just pause here for a moment and ask this question. Did Jesus really not know who had touched him? Did Jesus not have access to that information? Because isn't Jesus God? And isn't God omniscient? Doesn't God know all things at all times? Doesn't he? So Jesus then, being God, does have access to any and all information at any and all times. So why does Jesus ask, who touched me? Well, think about it like this. Many of you know that we have five children. And when our children were younger, there were times I would find the bag of cookies in the pantry ripped open and cookies missing. And so I'd go find the kids, and four of the kids, they have clean faces, and the other one has a guilty look with chocolate smeared all over his face. And I would ask, okay, who got into the cookies? Now let me ask you a question. Is it that I don't know? No. I know. It's that I'm giving our son the opportunity to come clean. That's Jesus here. He's inviting this woman to come forward and publicly confess what she's done. Why? Because there's a public dimension to our faith in Jesus. He wants us to own it. And that's why three young men this morning walked into that baptistry and got dunked Baptized for Jesus. They were publicly declaring, publicly owning their faith in Jesus. You see, that's why baptism is important. For the same reason that Jesus invites, through his question, this woman to identify herself and come to him openly, publicly, declaring her faith that reached out and touched Jesus. God does not want us to keep our faith private. He wants us to own our faith in Jesus by publicly declaring it just like this woman. I mean, can you imagine the scene? Jesus asks the question, who touched me? And immediately the crowd stops. Because Jesus stops. The crowd freezes. Almost in time. And it grows deathly quiet. And the people have to be thinking something like this. They have to be thinking, uh-oh. Somebody touched Jesus without his permission? Um, Jesus has power, real power. He can do stuff to people. And so um, somebody's about to get it. And it's going to happen right here, right now in front of us. Maybe Jesus will call down fire from heaven. And then a woman, now near the back of the crowd, raises her hand. And the crowd parts like the Red Sea. 
making a way for her to get to Jesus. And if we were shooting this as a movie scene, we'd zoom in till it's just her and Jesus in the frame. Fearing, trembling, she falls down at the feet of Jesus, just like Jairus. Just like the demon-possessed man back in verse 6. And as this woman pulls the cover from her face, there's got to be a collective gasp from the crowd because now they recognize her. She is the unclean woman, the one who is speaking. She is telling her whole story to Jesus. So how will Jesus respond? He doesn't shame her. He doesn't scold her. He listens to her, telling her whole story. The 12 years, the situation. This is compassion. She wants to remain anonymous, but Jesus won't let her. He cares for her and wants to show his grace and kindness to her, both personally and publicly, in front of everyone who had forsaken and forgotten her, in front of the physicians who couldn't cure her. She's satisfied with the touch of his garment, but Jesus isn't. He wants more for her. He wants her to look him in his face, to feel his tenderness, to hear him say in front of everyone that this woman is unclean no more. And so he says to her, with the utmost tenderness, the utmost he says, daughter. You ever caught that before? It's the only time in the entire Bible that Jesus refers to a single woman as Daughter. Not woman, daughter. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of relationship, of love, of belonging. It's Jesus saying, you've been alienated so long, but now you belong. You'll never be alone again. You are my forever daughter. The one nobody wanted is accepted by the God of this universe. The one nobody would touch is embraced by the strongest arms in this universe. And remember, Jairus is there too, with Jesus, beside Jesus. He's a father pleading with Jesus on behalf of his daughter. But there's no father for this woman to plead for her. And so Jesus becomes her father. And when we come to faith in Jesus, He meets us in our need and becomes to us what we lack. To the lonely, He's a friend. To the weary, a resting place. To the fearful, a hiding place. To the orphan, a father. To the sinner, our Savior. And that's why Jesus says to her, your faith has made you well. It isn't your touch that healed you. It's your faith in my power. I've put what's broken back together again. I've made you new through and through. Not just your body, but your soul. And now, now you can go in peace. 
It's all because Jesus steps into the desperation of her situation. And like he did with the disciples in the storm, out of chaos, he brings peace. Out of death, he brings life. And that's what Jesus can and will do for you. He will take, like with this woman, he will take the uncleanness of your sin upon himself and he will make you clean. He will trade places with you. The Holy One, the totally sinless, clean, righteous One will absorb this woman's uncleanness and in turn declare her to be clean. How? Not just on this street in front of her home on this day, but by walking up the Via Dolorosa to the road of, down the road of Calvary where he will die on a cross. The clean one will take the place of the unclean one. He will take her uncleanness and through his death he will declare her to be clean. New. The broken healed forever. And when you come in faith like this woman to Jesus, when you bring the uncleanness of your sin to Him, this woman's story will become your story because Jesus steps into our most desperate situation and goes to the cross and bears our uncleanness so that in turn, we can be declared clean. It's Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. So this morning, if you've never come to Jesus, would you reach out in faith? And touch Him. Bring your uncleanness to Him. Your sin. He will take it. He's absorbed God's wrath for it. And can free you from that. And declare you righteous and clean eternally. Will you come? Will you believe on Jesus Repenting of your sins and trusting in Him as your Lord and Savior and King to bring you peace with God. How do we get that? It's Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore being justified, therefore being declared clean or saved by His grace alone and and having our uncleanness removed and declared righteous before God. Therefore being justified by faith. Only believe. And then you will have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus this morning. Now that's not the end of the story. But that's all the time we have this morning. And so you'll need to come back next week to hear the rest of the story. What we've covered this week, though, is two desperate people taking major risks to bring their deepest needs to the feet of Jesus because they are utterly convinced that He is all the answer they need. And some of you this morning are facing things you never thought you'd face. Some of you this morning find yourself in situations where you have no idea what to do. 
Some of you are this morning facing such scary stuff that nobody else in this room knows about. And you're feeling the desperation of your situation. In this text, our God is inviting you to take three action steps this morning. Number one, cast all your cares upon Jesus. It's First Peter 5 verse 7. Casting all your care upon Him because, here's why, because, and we see it in this scene, because He cares for you. Individually, personally, just like this woman, just like this man. So unload your doubts and your fears and your cares onto Jesus. And here's where it gets tough. Leave them there. Don't pick them back up. Jesus, as we see here, Jesus can carry the load. Jesus is more than willing to take your burdens than you are to give them to him. And when you roll your cares on to Jesus, you'll secondly this morning sense the closeness of Jesus. You know, when life gets hard and when life hurts, we tend to feel forsaken and forgotten by God. And I want you to know this morning, that isn't just your experience. Read the Psalms. That's all of our experience. And that's why God promises in Isaiah 41, verse 10, when he says, fear not. Here's why. I am with you. I am your God, so don't be dismayed. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And when Jesus comes into this world, he comes as the fulfillment to those five promises in Isaiah 41 verse 10. He comes into this scary, broken world to prove that God is not some distant, derelict deity. And that's why Jesus walks with Jairus. And that's why Jesus stops this woman from leaving and walking away and invites her to come close. So I say to you this morning as you walk out of this room, by faith, grab a hold of the grace of Jesus. A few years after the death of his wife, missionary Adoniram Judson wrote a note to a female friend whose husband had just passed away. Here's what he wrote. My dear sister, you are now drinking the bitter cup whose dregs I am somewhat acquainted with. And though for some time you have been aware of its approach, I venture to say that it is far more bitter than you expected. There will be months and months of heartrending anguish yet to come. I can only advise you to sit down quietly. And that bitter cup of suffering God has appointed for you, that sits in front of you, take it with both hands and lift it to your mouth and drink. You will soon learn a secret. 
That there is at the bottom of that cup a sweetness that you have never tasted in all your life. Because at the bottom of that cup is the sweet, all-satisfying grace of Jesus. When life hurts, God can handle our trembling, our questions, our doubts, our desperation. He's both strong enough and good enough. That's Jairus' story. That's this woman's story. And when in desperation we grab hold of Jesus' grace by faith, this will be our story. Desperate times don't just call for desperate measures. Desperate times call for a desperate faith in a sweet and all-satisfying sufficient Savior who promises us in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Jesus is all the answer we need. Amen.